Freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. This quote comes from Pope John Paul II, one of the voices heard during our Catholic History Trek intro. The former actor was charismatic and beloved by millions, becoming the face of the Catholic Church for a quarter century. His celebrity status was unheard of for a modern pope, and there were many faithful Gen X Catholics and seminarians who considered themselves part of the John Paul II generation. His papacy was the third longest, behind only St. Peter and Blessed Pius IX, and when Pope John Paul II died, there were many devotees of the Pope clamoring for him to be titled John Paul the Great. Even a high school in Dumfries, Virginia, and a university in Escondido, California, quickly adopted the title John Paul the Great as names for their schools. But was John Paul great? Maybe he was just John Paul the Very Good, or maybe John Paul the Mediocre, or even John Paul the Bad. In this episode, Kevin and I are going to trek through the history of Pope John Paul II. We're going to highlight many of the things he was praised for, but we're also going to look at many of the things he was criticized for. And hopefully, after taking a broad historical look at his papacy, you can decide which title you think befits the legacy of Pope John Paul II. God bless America. God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you. They will be the concluding words on each broadcast. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. Annuncio Opis, Gaudium Magnum, Abemus Papam. You've embarked on a Catholic history trek. Calling a pope the great is no small matter. Only 1% of the more than 260 popes have merited the title of great, and the last one died over 1,150 years ago. These great popes were Leo I in the 5th century, Gregory I in the 6th century, and Nicholas I in the 9th century. Pope Leo I wrote his tome defending Orthodox Catholicism from the Monophysite heresy, and he was the shield of God who protected Rome from being sacked by the scourge of God, Attila the Hun. When Leo confronted Attila, tradition has it that Attila saw visions of St. Peter and St. Paul above Leo standing guard over the eternal city, and the powerful Attila suddenly decided to turn away. Pope Gregory I didn't even want to be the Pope. He had become a monk and sought to have his election invalidated, but as Pope, he continued to live humbly and holy, repudiating intrusive secular rulers into church affairs. He composed theological works, supported the missions, gave us Gregorian chant, covered in our episode on church music, and saved Rome from the Great Plague of 590, covered in our episode on the St. Michael Prayer. And Nicholas? Well, he was named after Santa Claus. Seriously, though, he's the least known of the three great popes. He defended Christian marriage against both the emperor and wayward bishops, and boldly stood up against secular rulers in defense of papal primacy. These were insufficiently brief histories of these three great popes. Fortunately, Kevin has a more sufficient history of Pope John Paul II. John Paul II was born May 18, 1920 as Karol Wojtyla in the town of Wadowice in southern Poland. He had one older brother. His older sister had died before his birth. 
His mother died when Carl was eight years old, so his father, also named Carl, raised the two boys. From an early age, Carl displayed impressive athletic and intellectual ability. In 1938, the family moved to Krakow, where Carl attended the prestigious Jagiellonian University. He participated in theater productions and became proficient in a large number of European languages. Nazi German forces conquered Poland in 1939 and occupied the country during Karl's university years, forcing many activities underground. His brother had become a physician and died at a young age, then his father died in 1941, leaving Karl as the last surviving member of the family. In 1942, he entered the underground seminary organized by the Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow. A year after the Nazis fled Poland in defeat, Wojtyla was ordained a priest for the Archdiocese of Krakow. He earned two doctorates, studying at the Angelicum in Rome, which would later be the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, see our podcast number 23 on Pontifical Universities, and also at the Jagiellonian. For a few years, he was a parish priest, especially active in ministry to college students and young couples. Then he was appointed to the faculty of the Catholic University of Lublin. During this period, Poland was part of the Soviet bloc. In 1958, age 38, he was made Auxiliary Bishop of Krakow, in 1964, Archbishop, and in 1967, named a Cardinal by Pope Paul VI. In the meantime, he had participated in the Second Vatican Council. He was in the conclave that elected John Paul I. He entered conclave again a month later, after John Paul's untimely death. And on October 16, 1978, Cardinal Wojtyla was elected the 264th Pope in the history of the Church, taking the name John Paul II. He was the first non-Italian pope in 455 years and the first Slavic pope ever. His papacy would last for over 26 years, making him, as Scott mentioned, the third longest reigning pope in history, after Pius IX and St. Peter himself, whose dates we don't know exactly, but it's estimated he was pope for around 35 years. John Paul II died April 2, 2005, and would be succeeded by Joseph Ratzinger, whom John Paul had made a cardinal and appointed as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. As Pope Benedict XVI, Ratzinger waived the usual five-year waiting period for the sainthood process. He would beatify John Paul in 2011, and Pope Francis would canonize him jointly with Pope John XXIII in 2013. So, he has officially been granted the title of St. John Paul II. But some question the legitimacy of his unofficial title, John Paul the Great. And that's what Scott and I will examine in the remainder of this episode. As Kevin and I take a historical look at what some consider to be the positives and negatives of Pope John Paul II's papacy, I'm going to be playing the role of the Advocatus Diaboli, in English that translates to the Devil's Advocate. The Advocatus Diaboli was the colloquial name for the Promotor Fidei, or Promoter of the Faith, which was a position established by Pope Sixtus V in 1587. The role of the Promoter Fidei was to raise all possible arguments against one being elevated to the honor of saint to ensure no stone had been left unturned. Interestingly enough, it was the subject of this podcast, Pope John Paul II, who changed this role in the canonization process, effectively eliminating the devil's advocate in 1983. But this is a history podcast, so Kevin and I will resurrect this historic role of the advocate. In this role, I'll be pointing out a lot of the negatives which people have levied against the Pope, while Kevin will generally be highlighting the many positive aspects of his papacy. 
I want to clarify that the criticisms which I'll be raising don't necessarily reflect my personal views, so don't come away from this podcast thinking, wow, Scott really hates Pope John Paul II. <laughs> we'll be covering a whole range of issues, but they can probably be grouped into his papal roles as an evangelizer, as a defender of the faith, and as the head of the Universal Church. Criticisms have been levied against Pope John Paul II for his style of evangelization that his ecumenism went beyond seeking common ground, but even ignored history and dabbled with heresy. One area where this charge is raised is the evangelization of Protestants. Pope Pius XI affirmed that this apostolic see has never allowed its subjects to take part in the assembly of non-Catholics, and further taught the union of Christians can only be promoted by prompting a return to the one true Catholic Church. And Pope Leo XIII claimed ordinations enacted according to Anglican rites are invalid. Yet, in 2003, Pope John Paul II kissed the ring of Rowan Williams, the head of the Anglicans, and bestowed on Williams a pectoral cross, signs that Williams was valid. John Paul II went even further, praising the heretical Martin Luther, John Calvin, Heinrich Zwingli, and Jan Hus, and commented on their great impact how they made the church more faithful to the will of God and were of infallible personal integrity, essentially praising those who rejected the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. His evangelization of non-Christians was not free from criticism either. If you recall, St. Paul taught that the gods of the pagans are devils and Christians should not be partakers with devils. Also, Pope Leo X and the Fifth Lateran Council reinforced this, prohibiting divinizations and the invoking of demons basically pagan prayers. But yet, John Paul II frequently joined in prayer with those offering non-Christian prayers or invocations to demons. Some examples would include praying with African witch doctors in 1985, and in 1986, he called for the infamous Meeting of Prayer for Peace in Assisi. At this meeting, he not only prayed with anti-Christians, but even allowed the Dalai Lama to place a Buddhist statue atop a tabernacle, symbolic of placing Buddha over Jesus. And in the 1999 pan-Christian encounter, Native American Indians and Muslims were invited to pray at St. Peter's. And at a follow-up Assisi prayer meeting in 2002, non-Christians were offered spaces to offer their invocations to their demons. And speaking of non-Christian religions, John Paul's interaction with Islam were also criticized. Pope Clement V lamented the public invocation of the sacrilegious name of Muhammad, Pope Calixtus III denounced Islam as the diabolical sect of the reprobate. Pope Leo X depicted the religion as replacing the light of salvation with unyielding blindness. And Pope Benedict XIV lamented Christians who even went as far as to take Muslim names to avoid fines. Yet on multiple occasions, John Paul II claimed that Muslims believed in the same God as the Christians. Keep in mind, Muslims reject the Trinity and reject Jesus as the second person of the Holy Trinity. John Paul also apologized for the Crusades, the Crusades which were solemnly approved by four councils and more than ten popes. Charles Martel defending Europe at the Battle of Tours, Jan Sobieski saving Vienna from Ottoman conquest, Don Juan of Austria in the amazing Battle of Lepanto, St. John of Capistrano in the Miracle of Belgrade, the same Miracle of Belgrade which initiated the Church's practice praying the new Angelus, Yet the Pope apologized for the Church's role in these great victories in any crusade against the Mohammedans. And in 1999, John Paul II even venerated the Koran, bowing to it and kissing it. Whether you think the Pope was right or wrong in these actions, 
He certainly broke from traditional teaching, and it's easy to see why some Catholics would be critical of the Pope as an evangelizer. So now on the positive side of John Paul II as evangelizer, I'm actually not quite sure if the two items I'm covering here fit exactly in this category. Maybe they should be in Defender of the Faith, but I got a bunch of items for Defender of the Faith, so I'm going to put these two here, thinking about them as John Paul reaching out to the world and also evangelizing within the church itself. A term arose in the 1990s, John Paul II priests. These were men who discerned their calling to the priesthood, at least in part through the example of John Paul. The rector of the North American College from 1994 to 2001, who is today Cardinal Timothy Dolan, wrote that although he wasn't all that fond of the term, John Paul II priest, he admitted the reality of the phenomenon. Over and over again I would read, the example of Pope John Paul II has been a major factor in my discernment of a vocation to serve Jesus and his church as a priest. This seems to have been more than an anecdotal phenomenon, as the pontificate of John Paul II saw a reversal in a roughly 20-year, sometimes precipitous decline in priestly vocations. The situation varies dramatically according to geography, but in much of Europe and North America, it's a similar situation. To take the United States as an example, in 1965 there were over 58,000 priests in the U.S. By 2019 there were 36,000. Graduate-level seminarians depict a similar story. There were 8.3,000 in 1965 and only 3.3,000 in 2019. However, in 1995, there were 3.1,000. So the point is that this steep decline in seminarians studying for the priesthood leveled off and in some respects reversed over the course of the 1990s. And it seems to me John Paul II deserves some of the credit for that. The second sphere is John Paul's relationship to the broader world. Specifically, I'm talking about the fall of communism in 1989 and in the early 90s across Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Now, John Paul's pretty widely recognized as an adamant foe of totalitarianism of any stripe. Having lived under communism, he recognized its many flaws, but he also insisted that the central problem was spiritual rather than economic or political. In his 1991 encyclical, Centesimus Annus, he wrote, Marxism had promised to uproot the need for God from the human heart, but the results have shown that it is not possible to succeed in this without throwing the heart into turmoil. There are many dimensions to the importance of John Paul in the weakening of the communist regimes of Eastern Europe. One major event was the papal trip to Poland in 1979, which by all accounts catalyzed the solidarity movement and stirred the spiritual sources of anti-communist sentiment in Poland. This role is widely recognized, not just within the Catholic Church. I still remember reading in the late 1990s the book Man of the Century by the non-Catholic journalist Jonathan Quitney, who praised John Paul largely for his role in bringing down communism. This narrative has been more recently reinforced by Paul Kenger's A Pope and a President, which is about Ronald Reagan and John Paul II, specifically their roles in bringing about the fall of communism. As the head of the church, the Pope is called to be a defender of the faith. This is another area where Pope John Paul has been attacked. And as the devil's advocate, I'll attempt to adequately list the biggest complaints levied against John Paul. One of the biggest complaints from liberals were his teaching on morals, basically things in the bedroom. Couples living together and hooking up, both of which had become norms in the West, were not acceptable to John Paul. And even though the modern world had long since abandoned any aversion to artificial contraception, 
John Paul ardently and stubbornly upheld the church's infallible teachings outlined in Humana Vitae, going so far as to uphold them as intrinsically evil. And not only did the Pope condemn the use of artificial contraceptives, he doubled down and rejected it as a placebo for preventing AIDS in Africa. Any hopes this young non-traditionalist Pope would get with the times and follow the spirit of Vatican II in matters of morals were quite disappointing. But not only were those on the left disappointed in areas of faith and morals, so were those on the right. The Council of Trent authoritatively taught that even though Christ died for all, not all received the benefit of his death, basically upholding the long-standing apostolic belief that there's no universal salvation. Even the updated translation of the New Mass affirms this with the correction of the Latin promultis from for all to for many regarding the sacrifice of Jesus. Yet in a 1980 homily at the Church of Santa Maria in Travestere, Pope John Paul II claimed all men are saved. In a 1985 homily, he claimed the Eucharist is the sacrament of the covenant which embraces all and this blood reaches all and saves all. John Paul II was a very Marian Pope his papal motto, Totus Tuus, is a reference to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yet, when he made his famous trip to Fatima, a year after being shot four times by a Browning high-power 9mm semi-automatic handgun, he failed to follow the request of Our Lady of Fatima. Instead of consecrating Russia, he merely and ambiguously just consecrated the world. Some consider the area of creation and evolution to be a matter of faith and morals, so it's understandable why some found his 1996 message to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to be troubling. He ignored the many genetic and biological challenges which confound Darwinian evolution and avowed that the theory of evolution is more than a hypothesis, basically putting a papal stamp of approval on the theory. And if you're wondering what I mean by the challenges to Darwinism, some scientists, both secular and Christian, have claimed their challenges such as the absence of clear beneficial naturally occurring genetic mutations, the irreducible complexity of key biological organs, a lack of time given the rate of genetic mutation to facilitate the present diversity of life, and a complete lack of transitional fossils in the fossil record. A number of other complaints come up regarding the watering down of the exorcism prayers in the Roman ritual, his new catechism, and his new 1983 Code of Canon Law, which allowed sacraments to non-Catholics change the purpose of marriage, and soften penalties for priest abusers. But I won't dive into each and every one of the complaints in these, but just say they are abundant. I thought I would summarize the positives about John Paul as defender of the faith through a survey of a few church documents from John Paul's pontificate. I also realize that much depends on perspective here because, as Scott's description of liberal criticism of John Paul shows, what liberals consider negative about his pontificate would be exactly what some conservatives consider positive. So, with that caveat in mind, here's the survey. Number one, the Instruction on Christian Freedom and Liberation in 1986, and a second document, the Instruction on Certain Aspects of the Theology of Liberation in 1984. Now, these aren't papal documents per se. They were issued by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, but they were issued under the auspices of John Paul's authority. Liberation theology was an extremely popular movement across the world, but especially in Latin America, which was a region of tremendous Catholic influence and growth. Liberation theology is a complex phenomenon, and the term liberation theology can be applied to orthodox theological ideas, but there was also a strain, perhaps a dominant one, that promoted heterodox notions such as the idea that Christ's most important role as liberator was not primarily a spiritual one, 
the achievement of freedom from sin and death, but primarily a political one, declaring freedom from poverty and oppression, which could be achieved through political means such as revolution. There's a Marxist influence in some strain which is detectable here, and it's something John Paul II was attuned to. The CDF documents, along with John Paul's own preaching, clarified the errors in liberation theology. The second document, Evangelium Vitae, 1995. Here I'll just quote a statement from a prominent American pro-life organization, Priests for Life, which was issued on the 25th anniversary of Evangelium Vitae in 2020. Priests for Life continues to rejoice in the gift which St. John Paul II has given to the Church in the encyclical letter Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. This document is the most comprehensive and authoritative statement of the Magisterium on the tragedies of abortion and euthanasia, and on the good news of the dignity of the human person. The third document, another encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, in 1993. Again, on the 25-year anniversary in 2018, the moral philosopher and a former colleague of mine at the Acton Institute, Samuel Gregg, called Veritatis Splendor the most controversial encyclical of the pontificate. Why? because it defended bedrock principles of objective truth and the reality of intrinsically wrong acts, condemning moral relativism. These ideas were rampant in Western theology and philosophy, even in Catholic universities and seminaries. Fourth, Redemptorist Mater, 1987. As Scott mentioned, John Paul II was notable for his Marian devotion. After the Second Vatican Council, Mary's status in the Church was called into question in many places. I've even heard stories about Catholics in the post-Vatican II period being told by their priest that they shouldn't pray the rosary anymore. John Paul put this misconception to rest. His deep veneration for Mary was clear in countless ways. To name just one, the incident of his attempted assassination on May 13th, and he attributing his surviving to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Fatima. In Redemptoris Mater, John Paul described Mary as the center of the pilgrim church. He declared a Marian year and endorsed the total consecration to Mary of St. Louis de Montfort. This was Marian devotion in a very traditional mode. Through these encyclicals and other documents of his pontificate, John Paul II, it seems to me, brought not perfect clarity, but greater clarity and order to the church and its teaching. As head of the Catholic Church, it is the role of the Pope to keep his house in order. Obviously, in a short papacy like that of John Paul I, such a task would have been impossible. But for John Paul II, who reigned for over a quarter century, there was more than enough time for him to address any problems he felt were worth addressing. So, how did he do in this regard? How does he compare with the great reformer popes? One of the biggest complaints, especially from the traditional side of the aisle, is the liturgy. So let's start with that. During the papacy of Pope John Paul II, the average Catholic in the pews witnessed the introduction of liturgical abuses galore, not to mention the purging of chant, high altars, and a sense of the sacred in favor of bad music, ugly churches, felt banners, hidden tabernacles, and liturgical dance. Reverent liturgies, ad orientum worship, and even the dictates spelled out in the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, were all rejected and tossed aside during his long papacy. And the one man who attempted to stem the tide and save the timeless mass of the ages from being lost forever, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, was excommunicated for his efforts. Pope John Paul II apparently didn't have any issue with the heretics of the Nouveau Theologie, such as de Lubac, Teilhard de Chardin, Conger, Rahner, Kung, Skillabrix, 
or von Balthasar, who Pope John Paul II even attempted to make a cardinal before God intervened, but a bishop like Lefebvre, who wanted to preserve the traditional Latin mass, well, that was unacceptable. Speaking of the liturgy, popes like Galatius, Innocent IV, and Benedict XIV all condemned and forbid what they called the evil practice of women serving at the celebration of the Mass. Yet, John Paul rejected this tradition and approved the innovation of female altar boys. But female altar servers isn't just a complaint from traditionalists who argued it was a step too far. Liberals complained the Pope did not go far enough. They argue that while the Pope wrote an encyclical on women, Mulieris Dignitatem, he didn't put his money where his mouth was. He refused to let women be ordained. Yes, he broke from tradition to give them token altar girls, but didn't give them anything of substance. So what was the fruit of these endeavors when clown masses replaced Latin masses? Did the active practice of the faith among Catholics see the promised renewal? Not at all. In fact, the opposite happened. The church witnessed unprecedented declines. Religious vocations plummeted, resulting in many historic religious communities shuttering their convents and monasteries during its papacy. Seminaries emptied and closed due to a lack of seminarians, and mass attendance precipitously fell. Of course, one could argue the lower numbers at mass were just a general lack of faith among all Christians in the West, but Gallup polls showed that from the start of his papacy to the end, weekly attendance at Protestant services actually increased about 12%, while weekly attendance at Catholic masses dropped by almost 20%. And of course, it's difficult to ignore the elephant in the room. No, not the one here in the studio at Kevin's house, but I'm referring to the sexual abuse crisis, which came to a head at the end of the Pope's papacy after spending many years being covered up by the Pope's curia. The Pope appointed sexual predator Theodore McCarrick, Archbishop of Washington, and eventually to the College of Cardinals, despite repeated warnings about his evil misconduct. Another evil abuser who the Pope took under his wings was Father Marcial Massier of the Legionaries of Christ, and the cover-ups under John Paul are too numerous to list here, but include many high-ranking officials who served directly under the Pope. But the corruption during his papacy extended well beyond the countless victims of sexual abuse and the Pope's toleration for the Vatican's Lavender Mafia. Financial corruption during the papacy was also rampant. The Institution for the Works of Religion, often called the Vatican Bank, became headline fodder for scandals. The most notable was the unsecured loans to shell companies in Panama, which came to light with the collapse of the Banco Ambrosiano. The result was the Vatican Bank paying out $224 million to various creditors, and several people mysteriously ended up dead. Another equally corrupt Vatican financial institution during the papacy was Peter's Pence. Originally established as the Pope's private collection to help respond to crises of human suffering around the globe, the funds collected have often found their way into the pockets of shady Vatican officials spent on immoral vice. And even if John Paul II didn't commit all these vices, he surely seemed to put little, if any, effort in stopping them. Well, Scott has highlighted the difficulties and the problems in the John Paul pontificate in his role as head of the church, defenders would highlight efforts that he did make to clean up some of the messes in the church. One of those areas would be Catholic higher education. In 1990, John Paul issued an apostolic constitution ex corda ecclesiae. He was responding to, in part, the Land O'Lakes Conference of 1968, at which U.S. Catholic universities basically declared independence from the church. 
Now, arguably, not much changed dramatically after Ex Corde Ecclesiae, but it at least provided tools for bishops who had the resolve to reassert the relationship between universities and Catholic doctrine. And it also provided a blueprint for colleges striving to be faithful, or for presidents trying to reform institutions that had strayed. On the matter of the appointment of bishops and cardinals, certainly Theodore McCarrick is a black mark on the John Paul papacy. Was he deceived, or was it willful blindness? Only heaven knows. John Paul appointed 231 cardinals over the course of his long pontificate. I searched for, but was unable to find, a solid statistic on the number of bishops that John Paul appointed, but I think it must be in the thousands. So by whatever criteria you want to judge, you'll probably find a list of bishops to support it. He appointed, for example, Fabian Bruskowitz as the Bishop of Lincoln, Nebraska in 1992, and in 1998, Blaise Supich as the Bishop of Rapid City. I won't go into detail about the character of these two appointments, but the point is to illustrate there is extreme diversity in the bishop appointments during the John Paul Pontificate. I found an article from a secular online news site in 1996 noting that a majority of U.S. bishops at that point had now been appointed by John Paul II. It cited Andrew Greeley, the liberal priest sociologist, saying that the Pope has appointed one unintelligent reactionary after another. In the same article, the conservative St. Louis University historian James Hitchcock said, the appointments have produced conservative bishops but liberal results. The bishops, he said, are people who are personally conservative, but they are low-key and have a tremendous aversion to bad publicity. Again, the point is, tremendous diversity within the world of the bishops that John Paul appointed. Moving beyond bishops, there were some strong appointments in the Curia, notwithstanding the problems that Scott cited. I've already mentioned Joseph Ratzinger in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, there was also Cardinal Van Tuan in the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, and Francis Arinzi for the Congregation for Divine Worship. Speaking of Arinzi and the liturgy, most would admit that there was, or arguably still is, a period of liturgical confusion after the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Scott described some of that. In his 2003 encyclical Ecclesia de Eucharistia, John Paul II called for response to various liturgical abuses that had arisen in that period. The result was the Congregation for Divine Worship's Redemptionis Sacramentum, which sought to recover, in particular, reverence for and sound practices concerning the Eucharist. Among the points in that document, it issued a ban on the use of unapproved texts and rites. It emphasized the absolute necessity of an ordained priest for the celebration of the liturgy and the use of appropriate vessels and vestments. It reaffirmed a ban on lay people giving homilies. It insisted on using lay ministers of the Eucharist only when there is an insufficient number of priests to distribute communion. It affirmed that priests always have the right to celebrate the Mass in Latin, and it insisted that communion must not be given to non-Catholics and non-Christians in violation of church rules. In a press conference following the release of the document, Cardinal Lorenzi also made clear that pro-abortion politicians should not be receiving communion. In sum, under John Paul II, there was reaffirmation of the teaching on the Eucharist and its implications for the liturgy. I hope I didn't come across as too harsh in this episode. I don't hate John Paul II or anything like that. But as the Advocatus Diaboli, I wanted to make sure a number of the complaints which have been raised got their due. 
And of course, people can decide if these detractions are even legitimate or serious, but for this episode, I felt it was better to address them than ignore them. And if there's anything you feel we missed, feel free to contact us at the email address we give at the end of the episode and let us know what you thought. The papal biographer George Weigel said that the pontificate of John Paul II was one of the most important in centuries for both the church and the world. Eric Sammons, in a 2020 article for Crisis Magazine, asking how great was John Paul II, wrote that one of the consequences of being a great man is that both your successes and your failures are far-reaching in their impact. So even while one acknowledges the great good John Paul II did for the church, one must also consider the possibility that he did great harm as well. The debate over the legacy of John Paul II will continue for some time, I suspect. That debate will be shaped not only by further research into the life and times of the Polish Pope, but also by ongoing developments within the Church and the shifting concerns of contemporary Catholics. What's important in 2022 may have seemed less important in 1982, and vice versa. In that sense, the greatness of Pope St. John Paul II won't be a fixed judgment, at least not until his pontificate is a few hundred years in the rearview mirror, like those of Leo, Gregory, and Nicholas. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto. Sicut in principio et nunc et semper et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com. <laughs>